All right, everybody. So we have Dr. Mike Israel with us today. He is a PhD in sports sciences, and he is the co-founder of Renaissance Periodization. So welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And um, so today, the charity that I'm going to be donating to, um, and everybody feel free to donate as well if you like the cause. Um, somebody I work with, their son is in the hospital right now for Perthes disease. Uh, basically, that means that there is a lack of blood supply to his femur, and the bone starts necrosing. Um, and so I just figured we could try to help them out a little bit today. Uh, so that's where today's will go towards. And uh, Mike, so everybody, I think, listening probably has a good idea of who you are. Um, you're, you're disrupting a $200 billion industry, and doctors hate you. So how many doctors that's hate a, you at I'm this point? Up. I think all of them. You know, um, I was, uh, before this, I was a mother slash a personal trainer, and I discovered a one-quick-fix slash cure. Wow. So I, I want to be credited with all of that, and I am disrupting a trillion-dollar industry. Everybody hates me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've seen you all over the AOL account ads. It's just all over. <laughs> That's right. So uh, I actually, oh, I'm sure you don't remember, but briefly in 2015, I sent you a Facebook message, and um, it was just talking about timed eating, and I was saying how, you know, I had thought I had some insight on something, and you had basically said, well, yeah, there's that, but have you checked out, you know, all these other things, like, to the contrary? And it just kind of put things in perspective for me that it, it's nice to it, – it's always great to read on your own, but when you talk to somebody like yourself and you realize that, you know, how in-depth your knowledge is in these areas, and, and I think unless you're really in the field like you, it's hard to have so much knowledge. Um, but that, that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on is just because your vast array of different areas here. Well, thanks um, so much. I, I hope I don't let you down. <laughs> so uh, first important question is, who is your favorite Dragon Ball Z character? Oh, uh, man. And so, why? You, yeah, so it's um, uh, so a two-part answer. The first part is Vegeta. Of course. Um, because he's got so many unbelievable one-liners, it's hard to keep track of all of them. Um. The second has to go, it's just like, I think I can't not mention Broly. Okay. Um, because Broly is magical. Um, I remember this one, there's like a kindergarten, and uh, people were like uh, a kid, the people were writing like what they want to be when they grow up, and one mm-hmm. kid, it was like a paper plate drawing, and he's like, I want to be Broly when I grow up. I'm like, this kid's going to do everything magical in this world. He's great. <laughs> um, so Vegeta, due mostly to his sort of philosophy, of being the permanent underdog that was destined for greatness. Mm-hmm. Um, like the Vegeta's vision, Vegeta's dream, that shit brings me damn near to tears. <laughs> and then Broly, because he says shit like, I am a god for no good reason, and it, it destroyed entire planets simply because he was pissed, accidentally ascended to Super Saiyan at age mm-hmm. like 15 just because. Unbelievable. Yep. Great answers. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so, of course, you know, at some point we're going to have to talk about MRV and your whole philosophy with that. Um, <laughs> We don't have but, to, but <laughs> <laughs> as if you haven't said it enough. Um, sure. But because that's you know so out there at this point, I did want to discuss some other things. And um, one of the things I really liked you, you know, it's maybe not as popular of a thing to talk about, but something that you had said is there are other things besides bodybuilding, you know. And you had mentioned who somebody. The example I think you gave was either Beethoven or Bach or something. Like imagine if they try to be a bodybuilder and they just never realize their talent in this other area. Um, and I think that's important. So could you just elaborate that a little bit of you know, why you mentioned that? Sure. So I think a lot of people, when they get into the quest for getting bigger muscles and getting stronger, 
what they'll do is they'll start to get uh, further and further invested into that quest and spend more time and spend more effort and put more psychological, not strain, but like a psychological investment and worth into how they're developing muscularly and how they're developing in strength. And then when they start hitting plateaus or difficulties or kind of realizing they might not end up being Larry Williams, um, what they can do is experience a little bit of a degradation in their self-esteem uh, and think, geez, you know, I, you know, I can't put another 20 pounds on my bench press. Like I'm, re I'm really just a nobody. And um, I just really feel down on myself. And sometimes people say, you know, I have all these other things to do. I have a job, I have a family, and I'm just trying to squeeze in as much bodybuilding as I can. And a lot of times just a, just an open thought experiment, open conversation with them, asking them a really simple question of why, you know, like, well, what do you mean why? Like, well, you know, what is it that you seek to gain out of bodybuilding? And they're like, well, it's fun. Like, are you having fun right now? And they're like, right. no. And like, okay, how could you have more fun? They're like, well, if I was more jacked, like, that's true. Now, what would it take for you to get more jacked? Like, well, way more supplements, way more training, way more dedication, a whole lot less of the other parts of my life, which I found really fun. So you go, okay, is that really realistic? And they're like, no. Right, so why don't we redefine fun to making some good gains, having fun in the gym, doing workouts you like, looking great, feeling great, and enjoying all the other beautiful parts of your life, of which there are or should be so, so many, and then they're like, geez, I never thought of it that way. And all of a sudden, they can contextualize bodybuilding and, uh, and, and strength training, and, and it can just be another great thing. Like, um, you know, it, it's kind of weird to imagine, like, you know, like, you have board game night with your friends, and someone, one of them is like, man, I, I hate when board, board game night ends because I just, just want to play board games all the time. I just want to quit my job and play board games. You go, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, it's just a part of what we do. It's fun, but, like, you know, there's... There's only so much board game playing you can do. So with bodybuilding, I think, and strength training, some people tend to get carried away. They're like, this has to be the central thing that I succeed at. And not everyone has the genetics to be, like, amazing at it. Um, and even the ones that – even if you're amazing, you know, you're not ever, until you reach the top ten at the Olympia, going to make direct money from competition. Mm -hmm. So then are you going to change your career – to be directly associated with bodybuilding. If you want to train people, you want to give supplement advice, that's great. Then you'll enjoy that, and that's good for its own sake. But some people, I think, end up doing that kind of stuff because it, it lets them bodybuild more, but they hate that other stuff, and they just kind of want to bodybuild. And then it ends up being that their whole life is kind of out of whack. And I've talked to quite a few people who either train less now than they used to or some people that don't train at all. And uh, it, they basically rebounded hard from this overinvestment phase they did earlier. Like, it was way beyond the point where they liked it. They just wanted to keep making gains and get bigger and stronger, almost like for the message boards to some extent. Like, right. for the internalized message board, you know? Like, I just, I got to keep getting better. And, and this is what I asked them, why? And they're like, fuck, I've actually never thought of it that far. Yeah. So, so it ends up being like, you know, uh, the kind of the, the TLDR is, Find out what you want out of the sport. Find out how much effort you're willing to give to that goal versus everything else good in your life, and then do that. And if you find that you're super passionate, like I've literally had some people be like, yeah, I uh, used to strength train a lot, but then I found like distance running. Like a friend mm -hmm. asked me to go on a run. I fell in love with it. I do mostly running now. I only lift twice a week. 
and they're almost looking at me because I used to know them 10 years ago as like, okay, here comes, you know, Mike's face of disapproval and how to right. stray from the righteous path. And I'm like, that's so great. And they're like, really? I thought you'd be pissed I gave up lifting. I'm like, are you, why, why in God's name would I be pissed I gave up lifting? It's a pointless, pointless hobby that gets you hurt <laughs> and destroys your health if you take it too far. You know, at the end of the day, Almost for everybody, bodybuilding and, and stretching are their hobbies. So if you don't like them anymore and they're out of whack and out of balance, you're just doing your hobbies wrong, like plain and simple. Yeah, and I think it's a great point as far as that, you know, you get tied to it because, I mean, for me, for sure, you, you become, depending on what age you get into this, you kind of become known for that and it becomes your identity. And like you said, even if you actually step back and think about it, I'm not actually enjoying this anymore you're so tied to that. You can't let go of the fact that, no, people know me as this. I can't drop back from it. And it just becomes 100%. everything. Yeah. And then, of course, the genetics. I mean, um, you know, there's a lot of studies now talking about IQ and, and how genetically determined that is. And, of course, with hypertrophy, uh, hugely genetic. And some sure. people, they just don't have it. And I, I would say, and tell me if you agree with this, but because of the fact that people tend to gravitate towards things they're good at, I would say that when you're looking at the average person you see, you know, in the fitness industry, let's say, that average is still going to be significantly better genetics than truly average genetics, because a lot of people who are on like, you know, the bottom end of the curve there, stop doing it after they don't have great responses. 100%. 100%. Even going into a gym, you see the above average, the above average, get walk into a gym, right? A lot of people that are, you know, you'll see like the sort of the bottom 20% at a gym in genetics. Most of those people just won't stick around. Um, right. You know, you want to see regular people go more to like a planet fitness. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you thought you were weak because all of your training partners bench 315 and you only bench 225. You go to planet fitness and they kick you out for benching 225 because you're too much of a meathead. And you're like, right. holy crap. <laughs> I just have this totally warped view. Like, you know, I, I have a bunch of friends to this day that think they're not very big or very strong, and these people look like gods to regular people. They lose right. so much weight, regular people stop doing whatever it is they're doing and freak out and walk away. Sure. So, and these people think, like, oh, I'm just, you know, whatever, middle of the pack. Like, middle of the pack for top 50 lifters in the world? <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, but right. But people tend to forget that, that perspective, and they also tend to think, like, I have to do this. Like, I, I have to get bigger. I have to get stronger. Like, what is in your life that requires you to be big and strong? They're like, well, nothing. Like, but I dedicated myself to this goal. Like, right. yeah, but you can reevaluate goals. Like, if you still want to be big and strong, but you're literally just wussing out, well, don't do that. But if you're like, you know, I'm getting big and strong is cool, but it seems like I want to do all these other things. Why not just do all the other things? It's it's a it's a hobby in our modern Western, very affluent world, and you don't really have to do it. So you got to make a choice at some. Yeah, I remember back in the uh, the Teen Nation days when it was really popular, and it, even just a couple of years into lifting, people would say, like, if you're not at least 200 pounds within two years of lifting, you're doing it wrong, and, like, all these things. And then I'd go into, like, a university gym, and I was one of the strongest people there, but yeah, on the forums, it was just a completely different expectation, I guess. Well, the people that comment that stuff on the forums are probably 14 years old and don't have yeah. their first <laughs> pubes yet, so it's like... You know, there's a kind of a, a little bit of a of an unfortunate culture that develops. You get a lot of men together in a room. You start to get developments of unfortunate competitive cultures. Men will compete at anything and everything for no re- like. If you started like a, a how to smash your own balls with a hammer competition, <laughs> I guarantee you it was exclusively 
uh, either be tons of tons of entries, and if you say, "Hey, you can win at this," people will sign up for it. So yeah. people get into this mentality that their strength and their physique, they're they're cr- climbing some kind of ladder, like some kind of hierarchy, and it's better to be on top than on the bottom. The thing is, in your daily life, there's no hierarchy. It just doesn't exist. You go to the barber shop. You go to pick up some groceries. You go to work. You talk with your coworkers. You talk with your friends, with your family. Your bodybuilding barely ever comes up. So what are you competing with? People on forums? Are you right. out of your mind? Like if that brings you pleasure, great. If you like your physique, great. If you like training, then no one's ever going to try to talk you out of something you like. But if you don't like these things and you feel compelled to have to get better at them, you can choose anything arbitrary. And the thing is, people say, yeah, but people will judge me for not being jacked. People in jiu-jitsu judge you for not knowing how to fight. Artists judge you for not knowing how to paint. Hipsters judge you for not knowing how to not pretend to not care that you are being judged. <laughs> Whatever the hell, hipsters. So every, there's hierarchies everywhere. You don't have to be the best at all of them. As a matter of fact, you don't have to be the best at none of them. That's a real carryover of middle school and high school mentality. Clicks, mm-hmm. popularity, hierarchies, rankings. When you're an adult, you stop giving a shit about that hypothetically, and mm-hmm. you start doing things that leave a good impact on the people around you, that are productive ways to make the world a better place, and things that you like. If training doesn't fall under any of those categories, stop doing it. Right. And um, how do you think people are taken advantage by that mentality? Because I, th- I think we see it all the time, um, especially in the supplement industry and selling programs that maybe aren't needed for that individual. Sure. Yeah, people say, like, you've got to get bigger, you know, like, like, all these supplement ads and stuff like that basically play into that idea that there's this pecking order and there's this imperative to get more jacked and stronger. Um, I don't know if they're taking advantage of it so much as they're just providing you with what you said you wanted. (laughs) Yeah. Like, if you said you wanted um, to explore your inner self and arrive at peace and beauty... Uh, there would be a ton of yoga studios and meditation studios that popped up the next day in your neighborhood. And um, you could say that those people are taking advantage of that. Well, yeah, and or they're just, you know, they don't have, companies have no purpose, no right, and actually no information to steer you in a, in a way that is best for your true, deep, and inner self. Why? Because they don't have the audacity to understand what that even means. Like, some people that take some, like I have a bunch of supplements right now that I'm looking at. I love the fact that there are companies making these really exotic supplements exactly for my needs. It's amazing because I am living that life. But, you know, how could they assume that, well, you know, these supplements really aren't good for you because you have a toxic relationship with lifting? They don't know. <laughs> so, so they're just going right. to be like, hey, do you want to get jacked? And you're like, yes. Then here's the supplement. You know, we, we are inundated. Think about other stuff we're inundated with. Um, how many times do you watch a commercial and you don't see a commercial for Nike or Adidas running shoes and running culture? Running culture done ran by me. You know what I'm saying? I have no association with running culture whatsoever. And when people are like athletes run and they have these commercials with a little hoodie and doing the warm-ups and then jogging in a neighborhood, you know, if you're dedicated, buy this new iPad that lets you or, you know, iPhone mm. that lets you run and keep track of your steps and your beats, all that stuff. I don't know, Dave, what it feels like when, when, when you're watching that. For me, it feels like, oh, that's cool. I'm sure some people are into that. It never, like, yeah. tempts me. I'm never Doesn't like, whoa, like, what am I doing with my life? i got to run. Like, I've never thought <laughs> that for a second. So yeah. the same way when we say companies, and I think you have a really valid point. Like, yeah, there's some companies that straight up take advantage of that. 
I think most companies not so much taking advantage of it. Is they're really just trying to be like, you, you said you like this one thing, right? And you're like, uh huh. They're like, well, here's some stuff that maybe can help you. <laughs> right. You know, and uh, geez, if they're selling products that don't work, that's bad. But if the products work and maybe just a poor use of your time, they don't have the information to decide what is a poor use of your time. You know? Can you imagine uh, you're you're selling art supplies and a guy comes up to you and you're like, listen, let me let me cut you the real deal. You don't need any of this stuff. And they're like, why? Like, because you're never going to be any good at art. You probably don't even like it. They'd be like, how dare you? You know, yeah. how do you know that? And you're like, I don't know that. I'm just kind of, you, know, you look like you, you can't you can't draw. So if someone, you know, uh, Dexter Jackson did his first bodybuilding show and weighed like 133 pounds. Can you imagine some like real world supplement guy being like, you know, you know, he goes to a GNC weighing 135 and some supplement guys like, you don't need any of this buddy. You're, you know, you, you do you wrestling or do cross country. You're a skinny guy. You'll never be the great. Mm -hmm. He's talking to a future Mr. Olympia, a living God for Christ's yeah. sake. Like how, well, who is he to tell him it's a poor use of his time. So um, if you're willing to get duped by supplement companies that sell you BS, that it stuff's on you. It's on you. Um, I would talk extensively about how to not get duped. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I, I agree with those points. And I think, in, especially in your case, you said, you know, I'm in this. I want those things available to me. I think the issue only arises when you have people who just aren't that knowledgeable. And so they hear, if you're dedicated, you know, you'll do everything for that last 1%. And in reality, a, a lot of those details, at least in my opinion, you know, those details don't matter for most people's situations. And so they think, you know, there's a certain somebody right now saying how to get a Hollywood body, you need intermittent fasting, so follow my program. Sure. And in those situations, I feel like they think, well, that's what I need to do. I need to be obsessive, and then I'll look like that person. Totally. Well, you know, the reality of the matter is that the only reason that stuff's wrong is because they're not recommending the Renaissance diet. If they were, they'd be amazing. Everything, everyone would be happy. A world in which everyone does a Renaissance diet, there's no war, there's fountains everywhere, people are flying kites. No need um, for ball smashing contests. I mean, or ball smashing contests happen all the time. It depends on your idea <laughs> of fun. Um, but no, you have, you have a really good point. It's funny, I had a, a, one of my friends, Pat, he was 290 pounds and he was like a 900 pound equipped squatter when he worked at GNC during grad school. And he would legitimately say that if a guy came in there and he was kind of a douchebag, he would upsell him at all the stuff that they told you to sell that week because it was like what was being, you know, trying to, trying to push it. And he said if it was just a regular kid who was like humble and just wanted to know what he should buy, he'd be like, look, let me cut you the real deal. Here's this really cheap protein. Here's some weight gainer. Eat real food. Train properly. Take this once a day instead of twice, like it says, and, and, and you're going to get good results. It was like he was yeah. cutting them the real deal. So right. that's really good stuff. You know, nowadays it's really great. We have this real diversity of, of supplement companies, especially with internet marketing and online sales. If you want quality products, there's a bunch of companies that are straight up no BS, like TrueProtein.com. Mm -hmm. They don't yep. even have advertisements as far as. They're just saying, hey, you want protein? You're like, like, maybe. They're like, well, we have it. We can make it whatever flavor you want, and whatever kind of isolate and branch chain, this and that. Here you go. Um, yeah, Dante's a good guy. Optimum, yeah, yeah. Optimum Nutrition. Uh, you know, Optimum Nutrition is a massive company, but they sell like five products. And their, their uh, was it, the gold standard way is like mm -hmm. the way protein you start with. It's the way protein you in the middle of your career, it's the one you're going to end your career with. It's just yeah. a great product. And I've never even seen any ads for Optum that are like crazy. They're just like, hey, protein, it's the best. People like it. Here it is. Like, they don't have to be like, it's going to make your you know muscles explode and the blah, blah, blah. And, and the companies that tend to advertise like that, 
yeah, a lot of times they're they're way way overvaluing how much supplements help at all. Mm. And absolutely, to your point, the oh sort of wide-eyed thirteen-year-old is like, "This is what's going to make me Mister Olympia." And of course, that's total BS. Right. But again, part of growing up, buyer beware. Unfortunately, some people never grow up in that respect. I talk to thirty and forty-year-olds too often. They're like, "What do you think of like uh, that new No Explode, that Nitro Stack? Is that worth it?" I'm like, "Oh my God, are you thirteen years old?" <laughs> no, it's not worth it. You didn't figure this out yet. Yeah. And, you know, that's why, like, at RP, we put out a bunch of books and, and guides and stuff like that and videos that tell people, like, hey, here's, like, the priority of what you should be taking in. Here's calories. Here's macros. Here's a little bit of timing. Supplements are way at the top of this pyramid, a little tiny little sliver. Right. And, and, and so it's a lot of that's just about education. And you will be duped, absolutely, if you just enter the fray with wide eyes and a conviction that you're going to do that 1% that you don't even mm-hmm. really need it to at that point in your career, yeah. Gotcha. Um, so there was a story I had in college I think you'd appreciate, and I wanted you to kind of expand on your thoughts on that. Sure. Um, so I, you know, I was, like I said, very dedicated from a young age, and I was constantly, you know, six meals a day and constantly going to the gym. And I remember somebody had said, like, wow, like, you're so dedicated and you have so much willpower. And my friend said, you know, I don't think it's really willpower. I think he just, he's like, has his habits. And at the time, you know, 20 years old, I'm like, no, screw you. I do have a lot of willpower. But later I was like, he's probably right. It's just that I developed these habits at 12 years old. And so uh, you've talked before about habit formation and, you know, we start with like inspiration, but how that, you know, needs to become a habit. Could you kind of expand on that? Totally. So willpower is a finite resource that can be depleted, but repleted. Um, and it is used in order to fulfill the task that discipline demands of us. What discipline demands is when our motivation isn't high enough to get the dieting we need to get done or the training, the intentions don't match the actual motivation, discipline fills in the gaps. So you have to use your discipline to do what you promised yourself you would do that's part of the plan, even when your motivation is low. And that discipline is fueled by willpower. The thing is, as you do that kind of stuff more and more and more, your habits start to solidify and the gap between your intention and your motivation on average starts to narrow, so you don't actually have to use that much willpower. And we all have to use willpower every now and again, but less and less. So it's kind of like when you were in college and you were already a pretty high-level practitioner, you would wake up and make a protein shake, and people would be like, man, that's dedication. You're like, I just don't really know an alternative to doing anything else when I wake up. Like, I just eat protein. That's just what I do. It requires almost no willpower. Now, there's occasions where stuff would require willpower, really hard workouts, having to get some, some good food when everyone is eating junk, that sort of thing. But, you know, to be completely honest, as a, a higher-level practitioner, habits, and this is a really good thing, end up taking over for the most part, and willpower use becomes much lower. Interestingly enough, you use the predominance of your willpower as a fraction of your total adherence is highest in the first several weeks of diet and or training. And it's no coincidence that the first several weeks has the highest drop-off rates because mm-hmm. a lot of people just can't put out that willpower. So I'll tell you what requires a lot of willpower. And I, I still to this day think about these sorts of things. When I see someone that's clearly new to the gym, first couple weeks new, they're struggling with the exercises, they're unstable, they're out of shape, I'm always real sympathetic to them. And I think, damn, they're putting out crazy willpower just being here. And they're probably looking at me and being like, I wish I had that guy's willpower. And you're like, ah, willpower, I'm, I'm addicted to training. 
it would take me willpower not to show up to the gym. Sure. So it's, it's important to kind of, uh, you know, keep that in mind. And also another important thing to keep in mind is when you, you are one of those people that's in the first couple of weeks of a transformational change, keep going because it does get easier. It really does get easier. Awesome. Um, I think towards the end of the diet, and you had talked about, actually, I had not heard anybody really voice this before, but your opinion of adding back foods. And you had said, kind of, I forget the terms you use, but basically um, lower palatable foods when you're first on the diet and then kind of scaling up that when you're bulking and you have, you know, like the really delicious foods. Um, first of all, could you just explain why is that? Um, and then secondly, do you ever kind of break that rule? Yeah. Um, so basically, as you get deeper and deeper into a hypocaloric diet, into a cutting diet, you get hungrier and hungrier for more food, and you're cravier and cravier for tasty food. The um, partial solution to that problem is to eat food that's very voluminous, right? Like, how much salad can you eat to go over your calories? You'd have to just choke to death at that point. Mm. And um, food that's maybe not even that delicious, so you stop looking forward to food as much. It fills you up more, and you're kind of just like, yeah, food's a good job, you know? You want it to feel like a job because there's never enough of it and it feels really good. There'll be never enough of a good thing, which will drive you nuts and lead you to cheat. It's either you're miserable or you're cheating, and then you're miserable again. Mm -hmm. So towards the end of a cutting diet, you should be eating foods that are very high volume, a lot of veggies, a lot of whole grains, um, a lot of lean meats that aren't flavored a ton. It just aren't that great. Uh, an example of this is towards the end of one of my uh, really hard diets – when I was first playing around with these concepts, I ate, this is really gross, but I ate salted cooked oatmeal with broccoli and chicken chunks in it. These weren't like flavor. This is chicken breast plain. Yeah. Um, I legitimately was like starving to death and I would get two thirds of the way through the meal and have to force feed the rest of it. Mm. Having to force feed yourself on hypocaloric dieting is like a sublime religious experience because yeah. you're like, wow, I'm really winning at this thing. And someone's like, Hey, are you super hungry? And you're like, Nope. And they're like, so you really want to eat more food after you're done with your meals? Like not the meals I'm eating. And to be right. honest, after a while, if you don't have really tasty foods like junk foods, you kind of forget what they're like. You kind of don't even get crazy. You see someone eating a cheeseburger and you're like, I, I faintly remember a cheeseburger and what that, felt like, you know, before the war, before the bombs started to fall. I remember my uncle having one, and I was holding a balloon, and then the first bombs fell, and we all ran to the shelter anyway. So uh, it was just like a long, faint time ago. And then, now, mind you, if you reintroduce that cheeseburger during the hypocaloric diet or right after, it's going to taste like some obscene satanic thing in your mouth. Like, yeah. it's just amazing in every way. It fills gaps in your life you never even knew you had. <laughs> The problem with that is, so basically, people end their diet, and they do follow all these rules, and they do great. Then the diet is over, and then they start eating these super tasty, super high-calorie-dense foods, and all you want after eating super tasty, high-calorie-dense foods is more super tasty, high-calorie-dense foods. All of a sudden, your caloric intake spikes. You're way above maintenance. You're way even above a normal massing progression, and then all of a sudden, you're getting super fat. So what's the solution to that problem or potentially a mitigation of it? Well, instead of just jumping off your diet, you transition. Now, the first thing you do is you take your calories and you bump them straight up to maintenance, okay? Because spending time in a smaller and smaller deficit is just like if you're laying next to a fire and it's burning your face, the firefighters come and they move you like a foot away and they're like, that's better. You're like, 
are you fucking kidding me? I'm still burning. They're like, yeah, but you're burning less. I'm like, that is not a consolation at all, right? So you want to get away from the fire completely and get some cool water on your face. So you basically want to cut the deficit completely and go straight to maintenance. But for the first week or two, you eat the same exact foods that you ate in the last two weeks of your cut, but in a maintenance diet. After two weeks and your metabolism starts to rub up again, your uh, meat, your sort of uh, unplanned energy expenditure starts to go up. Um, after that, you're kind of like, uh, man, this is getting kind of tough to eat all this food. Like, I don't want this food anymore. I don't want anything anymore. Just, I just stop eating. Then you transition over the next two weeks to some tastier foods that are calorie controlled. So you kind of allow yourself the tasty stuff, but the calorie control is still there. So, for example, you uh, put in some Greek yogurt uh, uh, with artificial sweetener in it. Uh, it's yummy, way better than, you know, disgusting you know, salted oatmeal and chicken, but um, you're not going to overeat that stuff. It's physically impossible to overeat yeah. uh, pretty much, especially if you're not working with a greater calorie load. Maybe you try some uh, fat-free frozen yogurt. Maybe you try some rice and chicken with a little bit of teriyaki sauce instead of just plain. All of a sudden, your food is better, but you're still fundamentally following really good macros, not overeating fats and high-calorie junk foods by a ton. After this phase, you're basically a month out of the diet. Your recovery, as far as craviness, met metabolic speed, all these other hormones, is well underway. And your calorie intake at that point is much higher. Now you might be able to transition to a normal off-season diet and, and take your first real cheat meal. But I'll tell you this. After four weeks of eating plenty of, of sort of healthy food and calorie-controlled food, your first cheat meal is just not going to be as much food as you thought. As opposed yeah. to your first cheat meal was the day you ended your diet. You can eat two whole pizzas the day you end your diet. But after four weeks of eating more and more commercial clean food, you might have like four or five slices of pizza and be like, ah, I'm right. done. Right. right? So, and, and at that point, there's not a crazy weight rebound. You're not getting a ton of fat tissue. Uh, and it's sort of the best of all worlds. So you basically take all of the dieting stuff you did in order to get to the diet, incrementally removing tastier foods, incrementally increasing food volume, and you reverse that out until you go back to your normal cheat meals, and all of a sudden, a couple, you know, six to eight weeks later, you basically have a normal diet, but you never have that crazy rebound that gained so much fat, so on and so forth. Yeah, it's it always amazes me. Like literally every time when I go up and I'm at the end of a gaining phase, trying to think how was I ever into that disgusting food when I was dieting, and then yeah. when I'm dieting, it's like how could I ever have been tired of food? And it just yeah. every single time, it just amazes yeah. me. Yeah, and the, the, these these factors won't completely reverse these relationships, but they'll make them much easier. Much easier during a cutting diet means less of a chance for cheating and less stress, which means better success hormonally speaking, and then less uh, uh, better success with the rebound from amassing phase. I mean, it's a lifesaver for people who are trying to maintain after a diet. Like if you're trying to lose 50 pounds of fat over the course of several years, you lose 15 pounds. And then you gain back 20, that's no good. This way you can lose 15 and gain back two or three. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're you know, bodybuilding or whatever and you're massing, then it could be the difference between a really productive mass that's slow and steady and gives you a lot of lean tissue versus one in which you hit your peak mass weight a week after your bodybuilding show. And you're like, okay, yes. clearly I messed this up. Right, right. Um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend this to people I'm working with most of the time unless I know them well. Uh, but something I occasionally do, uh, again, I think it comes down to self-control, is, and maybe you do it too, when you are finished a diet, like you said, that 
nine out of 10 food can be a 15 out of 10 food because it's just like a foodgasm basically. So sometimes I will still have, you know, a, a one once in a while, like a crazy cheat towards the end of a cut, just because I think it is one time that you can just have, like you said, this is unbelievably good meal, but that's assuming the person can control themselves and not just, yeah. you know, ride that. So yeah, 20%. it's definitely an interesting experience to have as a human being going through your life to have food taste that good. Yeah. Um, it won't taste that good if you do the the uh, rebound control, like I mentioned. Mm-hmm. It'll taste pretty damn good, but no, not never that good. Um, but and I think if you're one of the people that can control themselves, that's totally cool. The thing is, those people are usually in the minority. Yeah. And I think it's something you can try, and then when you fail at it enough, you're like, okay, <laughs> clearly I'm not one of these people. Yeah. Uh, but the good news is there is something to do, even if you're not one of these people. Right? Oh, it's okay. Let's look at more conservative strategies like this easing back in, and all of a sudden you got something that works for you uh, and is, uh, you know, uh, certainly going to make life easier rather than difficult. And it still requires self-control. You know, um, people think like, oh, this requires less self-control this way. Like, yeah, you still got to keep yourself the hell out of Burger King, you know, yeah. but as long as you don't go in there and order food, the strategies work pretty well. I think we lost you there. You got that whatever was covering the phone. Oh, sorry. No worries. Did, did, did I, the, the speaking? Yeah, no, we got you there. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> um, so I'm, okay, we're good. Uh, let's see. Boom. Got it. Okay. Um, so I, I won't make you, you know, re-explain MRV and MEV and all that again. I think there's a ton of resources people can look at for that. Um, but you were certainly the first person to popularize the terms, and they inherently make sense, right? Of course, there is some maximal volume that you can't recover from anymore. And of course, there's some, you know, effective volume where you'll start growing. Uh, And I know it's impossible to put hard numbers on this. But when you look at your model of doing that and kind of like gradually going up compared to, I I guess, a more, I guess, I would call standard model, um, just like a typical progression and people not focusing so much on that. At the end of the day, over a year or, you know, between competitions, how much of a difference do you think that makes? Uh, you know, I imagine some people listening to that think, I'm going to gain twice as much muscle doing that. And I, I just, in your opinion, how much of a difference is that making? For the average person, it's going to make a very small difference. Um, for the not average person, it could make a real big difference. So here's an example. Recently, uh, um, and I was just sort of reminded of this fact by reading uh, James Krieger's research review, which is incredible, weightology.net. I'm not paid to say that, by the way. Um, so I actually pay James Krieger to be able to, to say his name out loud, <laughs> otherwise he beats me up. So um, it's been shown pretty conclusively. So they used to think there was tons of people that were non-responders to hypertrophy training because in studies they simply grew almost no muscle at all. Mm-hmm. What ends up happening is as you scale up the average volume in a program, let's say you had a program that does five sets a week of squats, another program that does 15 sets a week of squats, and another program that does 30 sets a week of squats or quad work or something. The percent of people that are non-responders to the five sets a week could be as high as 50. The percent of people that are non-responders to the 15 sets a week might be as low as 20. The percent of people who grow no muscle at 30 sets a week might be as low as five or ten. Those people are just, you know, some some sigma shit is ag. And, uh, you know, yeah. there there there's our whole discussion earlier. Maybe bodybuilding is just not 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 right. <laughs> so, um, so the interesting thing is, 
without an understanding that volume landmarks are very individual, like you have your own minimum effective volume and your own maximum recoverable volume, if you happen to fall, if your minimum effective volume, maximum recoverable volume, if that interval, if normal, regular, whatever, X by X programs, 3 by 10, 5 by 6, that whole thing, if they happen to fall between your MEV and MRV, you're one of the people for whom it wouldn't make a huge difference. But if you're out of that range, it's going to make a big difference for you. And what the, that, that whole non-responder thing very clearly illustrated is that, you know, some people, for example, uh, take a program like 531, mm-hmm. right? That program is so low volume, there's a lot of people that just straight up never grow from it who think they can't grow. And when they get the volume concepts thing going and they try to go up to 20 sets a week or even more, and they find better and better gains, they're going to be like, Jesus, why did I do this sooner? On the other hand, there's the opposite problem. There's some people whose maximum recoverable volumes are just way lower than other people's. Maximum recoverable volume of, of 10 sets per week in some exercises or 15 sets. Some of those people will try all the volume in the world and just get hurt and just get crappy results and get hurt and get crappy results. And all of a sudden, they read up about the stuff. And they go, man, you know, I think I have been exceeding my MRV. And they think, well, there's no way my minimum effective volume could be this low. They try to train with low training volume, and it's the best training they've ever had to get great results. They're like, why didn't I do this sooner? So for the average person, if they're in that MEV, MRV interval with normal programs, you know, there's going to be some good stuff comes out of there. Certainly a benefit, but it's it's a lot of it's for the people who are not average. And there's a lot of people who are not average um, for whom that personalized understanding of how to find their volume landmarks and how to navigate between them, that's going to make a really big difference. And they're going to be like, wow, I can't believe I didn't look into this stuff sooner. Awesome. And, and you're obviously doing a lot now with the Renaissance periodization. You know, what are the plans for that? I've seen it more and more recently. Anywhere where you're going from here? We're trying to build an octopus. It's a mechanical octopus. And we're trying to see if we can get the tentacles long enough to wrap up the whole world. Now, it's easier said than done because we're actually having to mine metal in the moons of Jupiter because there's not that much steel in the entire Earth's core. Well, we could get it, but it would destabilize the planet. Does that make sense? No. Because, you know, our octopus will take care of the world while enslaving most of its inhabitants and killing the rest. But we don't want to break the Earth. You know, we're a charitable company. And we care about the planet. Do you want today's donation to go towards that instead? Maybe. (laughs) Well, you know, the the octopus is a purely for-profit enterprise. We we don't actually take donations. I mean, if you'd like to become an investor, we can have that talk separately. Sure. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So RP is kind of like, so it's a company I co-founded several years back, and it's growing a ton. It's really great. Uh, Nick Shaw is the co-founder. is a very good friend of mine from college. And... What we do at RP is we write a bunch of books, we write a bunch of articles, um, so that's a, is a, quite a bit of our sales come from selling books, which explain all these concepts you and I have been talking about. But a lot of what we do is make digital products like templates and sort of auto-regulated training programs that take all of this knowledge and put it into something, a format where the person executing it doesn't really have to know all the science. Maybe they're dentists, maybe they're busy professionals in hundreds of other fields, they're intelligent, they know science is the way, they want their program to be scientific, but they're not exactly going to go pick up a physiology textbook. A bunch of these products are diet templates, are training templates, uh, so on and so forth. There's a bunch more products like that that we have in the works that are too top secret for me to comment on. Not the octopus, though, that is in the works as well. Um, and these products basically let people have 
the benefits of a scientific approach to training and nutrition without having to get PhDs in the stuff. So, so that's what we're doing RP. Uh, news on that is uh, our, our updated Renaissance Diet book 2.0 is coming up in November. Okay. It's already completed. It's just being finalized. That is a book killer. The thing's going to be like 400 pages. Uh, the original RP Diet book was 150 pages for perspective. And um, it covers everything from calories all the way to adherence to psychological issues to body composition measurement. Um, I'm really excited about the book because I honestly think it's going to be one of the gold standard books for, for body composition, nutrition, like, very cool. uh, yeah, it's actually so complex and so inclusive that we have like a quick tips at the end of every chapter. If you're yeah, really not into the Brady stuff. Yeah. yeah. And also I just recorded uh, a video for every single chapter where it's basically like a 10 minute video of just all the main points. So if you really mm. just sort of want to quote unquote, read the book, but not read the book, the videos are going to come out once a week uh, after the, you know, each week after the diet books release. So they're going to be super cool. Um, we have all kinds of other stuff we're working on. Uh, but uh, if I actually say the words, then I have to like swallow a uh, cyanide ampule hydra style. And because uh, I have commitment, I, I want, want to see, I think we all want to see the giant octopus, don't we? I would agree. I would agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, where else people find you? Yeah. Uh, RP Dr. Mike on Instagram and then at RP Strength on Instagram, so that's not securitization. A okay. big thing happened today. We got our blue check verification check. Oh. So we're a real company. Wow. Um, that's right. And um, uh, Renaissance Periodization uh, Facebook page. I have a Facebook page. Um, Mike Israel. It's a public page, so come follow me, comment, post, so on and so forth. Um, I used to post a lot more on Facebook. I'm super busy with a bunch of projects now that are going to be really awesome. So I don't post as much. Another reason I don't post as much on Facebook anymore is because that algorithm, uh, they just, I don't know what the hell they're doing on Facebook. It's a for-profit company, which is great. I hope they're making a lot of money. I'm tired of seeing articles by VFUN, whatever the hell mm. that website, I'm going to burn that fucking website. <laughs> um, and like, did you know, like, do you have an energy vampire in your life? I'm like legitimately over here trying to kill myself. And then puppy videos that I could find anywhere else. I, I, Facebook used to basically like over the last three or four years, I kind of made my name on Facebook by posting these elaborate informative mini articles for free. Mm -hmm. um, and I, don't do that as much anymore because they just don't get any likes and shares. I, I reach almost no one. And the thing is, I'm not doing it to get famous or whatever. Like Instagram right. gives me plenty of that. I just want to reach more people with high quality content. That's not a fucking Instagram picture. And right. I can't do it because Facebook's like, Nope, you're going to get puppy videos instead on your feed. Sorry yeah. for that off, off label rant, but you can follow <laughs> me on Facebook as well. So there it is. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Great. Man. Well, thanks for talking with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.